You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this show is the iconic and legendary Rick Charlesworth. Rick is an Australian sports coach and former politician. He played first-class cricket for Western Australia and international field hockey for Australia, winning a silver medal at the 1976 Summer Olympics. He also served as a federal member of parliament from 1983 to 1993. And on top of that, he is a medical doctor. He was appointed coach of the Australian women's hockey team in 1993, leading them to Olympic gold medals in 1996 and 2000. He later coached the Australian men's hockey team, leading them to win the world championship and a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. He has also worked in consulting roles with the New Zealand national cricket team, the Australian Institute of Sport, and the Fremantle Football Club. Rick has been awarded a member of the Order of Australia and an officer of the Order of Australia, and to top it all off, was awarded the Australian Team Coach of the Year in 1994, 96, 97, 98, 99, and again in 2000. Rick is an icon of coaching in Australia, and it was an honour to interview him. There are many, many nuggets of insight that he shares, but it was his thoughts on mining for and managing conflict and homosexuality in female versus male sport that really resonated with me the most. I hope you enjoy our discussion. The Great Coaches Podcast. Rick Charlesworth, thank you for joining us today. 
It's a pleasure. And uh, just for the record, where in the world are you? I'm in Perth, uh, Western Australia, and uh, life in Perth, even in this time, is uh, back to normal, hopefully, with our fingers crossed. Rick, I'd like to start this interview, if I could, by talking a little bit about Shakespeare, because I've, I've read that your favourite quote comes from Measure for Measure. Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. And there's the book there. Could you, can you talk a little bit about what this quote means to you? Well, I suppose, you know, um, when, I was, uh, when I was a coach, you're always wanting to uh, say things in another way, use other messages. And so, you know, I was always using quotes from, uh, from politics and from other athletes and coaches. And uh, Shakespeare, if you like, was the first psychologist in English literature, the first person to put meat on the bones of his characters in a way in which... Uh, they were they were described and they were flawed and 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 in many cases uh, damaged. But but he 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 really put characterization into into literature, if you like. And I suppose that that well, our, our downside traders that makes us lose the good we off might win by fearing to attempt. And uh, I'm trying to think of the context in the play. I think it was about uh, the. Uh, the, the woman who uh, was trying to save her brother who, who had got into trouble and she was entreating to the prince. But, uh, but it's, it's really, uh, it's something that, that's a time, time old message in sport. You know, you, uh, you better have a go. You have to risk failing to, to, to try and succeed. You have to risk losing to win. And uh, mostly, or lots of times in life, we, we, we don't take that risk. We, we run away from the possibility that we might fail and so we don't go for it. And uh, I think it's an important message uh, for any athlete. Uh, and and uh, so it came from there. But it, like, I, I remember in my first book, I used a half a dozen quotes from Shakespeare. And I was on a, a TV program in, in Australia way back and uh, they were comparing my book with Shane Warne's and, and they said, well, Shane hasn't used any of Shakespeare in his, but uh, uh, you've got half a dozen quotes there. <laughs> Mine was a much more erudite publication. But, yeah, you know, sweet are the uses of adversity is another one. You, you, need, you need to trial by fire is important if you're going to succeed. If, you're going to, if you want to go into the cauldron, then you've got to have probably been in there before. You know? Let me ask you about self-doubt. I mean, Many athletes suffer from it. A lot of coaches also suffer from it. What advice do you have for coaches who perhaps are dealing with some self-doubt? You know, doubt is good. Doubt's normal. Doubt's as it should be. If you think you know the answers, then you're probably tricking yourself or kidding yourself, and you may be wrong. And so doubt is, if you like, the, the, the foundation of all knowledge. It, it makes us curious. We wonder about whether or not we've got it right. We explore our motivations. We look at uh, our solutions and we, we try to uh, develop ways of doing things that are foolproof. So doubt's a good thing and, and, and we all have it. I mean, I remember listening to Roger Federer when he was undoubtedly the best tennis player in the world before the Australian Open. It would have been more than a decade ago. And he was saying, I'm not, I don't know how I'm going to go in the final. I'm going to be very hot. I don't know whether my preparation's been good enough. My forehand's not going as well as I... And, and here's this guy, and he won the final the, the, the next day, 
preparing himself for the. But he's he's got doubt. Everybody's got them. The best player in the world has them. But uh, the, those apprehensions are also one of the things that fires you to compete. And uh, Herb Elliott, our greatest runner in Australia, probably said he ran on his apprehensions. They were the things that fired him. And I think that uh, that 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 it's a good thing. And let's face it, in a sporting contest, you can never, never be sure what the outcome will be. I, I know that sometimes the Pakistani bookmakers think they know the answer, but uh, but indeed, that's the reality of sport. Rick, you were coaching as a teenager, I believe. You played cricket in the Australian national competition. You represented Australia in the field hockey. And most interestingly, you had the PM as a boss for a while when you were in parliament. From all of these experiences, what do you think it is that the great coaches do differently? Oh, God, that's a hard question. Uh, well, you, you don't learn much about coaching and teamwork from your time in politics, I think. But uh, I think what you do learn in, in politics is about persuasion. And leadership is, is, in my opinion, only about two things. It's about real definition about where you want to go, knowing knowing what you want to achieve, where, you, how, where, where the end point is, where you're heading. And then it's about being able to persuade people and take them with you. And, and you do that in all sorts of ways. You do that by the example you set. You do that by your rhetoric and uh, tactics and, and by gathering evidence in a whole range of ways to, to convince people that this is the way we ought to go. But at the same time you do that in a sporting context, you also have to look at the athletes who are in your team or the people who are in your team and you have to make the most of them. You have to discover a way which utilises their skills and abilities. So I think the great coaches know where they want to go. They, they have definition about that. They never accept second best. They always insist on, on, on quality. And they look at the people that they've got available to them. And if they haven't got enough, then they have to find some others. But, uh, and they find a pathway which uh, helps those people uh, deliver and gives them, if you like, the opportunity to display what they can do. The other thing I think that, that you know, I coached for... Uh, 14 years, national team, men and women in the end. You know, I started, as you said, when I was a teenager because it was the thing you did in our hockey club. We expected you to coach the juniors and, and I got involved in it early on and I gradually worked you know, at a higher level. I coached the national team 14 years and I never yet met a player who knew how good they could be. And my my job was to lift the bar and extend them and to, to really broaden their horizons, you know. And the same thing I think applied to myself. I mean, I started and I played because I loved it, but then uh, the world opened up and more and more possibilities became uh, evident. And I think that uh, as a coach, you do all of that, but what you do is you stretch the people who are working with you. You challenge them and you take them to a place they didn't think they could be. What's the best piece of coaching advice you ever received? I know you've given a lot, but I'm interested to see what you can recall as being something that stuck with you. Boy, these are hard questions, Paul. Hmm, Jesus. Uh, well, I think I had a lot of coaches when I was an athlete in my formative years, and all of them offered something different. The first coach I had at school just said, look, let's go out and enjoy this and have fun. 
Then uh, I, uh, there were people who taught you things technically. Our first coach for the national team, Merv Adams, was a great motivator. And he was from the subcontinent. And when we couldn't beat the subcontinental teams, he said, yes, you can. And we believed ourselves. And Arthur Sturgis was much more tactical. There were a range of uh, others. Richard Agus was uh, built teams. Frank Murray was very, very tactical. They were, they were, they were all, they all offered something. I think, though, the most important lesson for me was you never accept second best. You have to insist on quality because, in the end, your players need to have reproducible skill under pressure, and you've got to equip them with that. Most of the decisions and judgments that are made on the field are made by players in real time, not by coaches. But unless they have the equipment to do that then they're not going to be able to handle the situations that come along. And I think making sure you equip them with that uh, is critical because if you keep making errors, if you keep making skill errors, no tactics will work. And in a game like hockey, scoring a goal is a very hard, complex, difficult thing to do. It's very crowded. There's not much space or time. So you've got to have uh, exquisite skill if you want to be able to do it at the highest level. And and so you've got to, you've got to, Training is critical. You've got to deliver that at training. I'll try and ask you a simpler or an easier question then, Rick. I'd like to talk. I'd like to talk about conflict. I was recently listening to Lisa Alexander, the Australian netball coach, speak, and she said how you were the first coach in her mind to embrace honesty and conflict rather than avoid it. So, could you talk about the role of conflict in your coaching philosophy? Well, I think that um, you better anticipate and expect and mind for conflict because it's out there. It's just whether or not it's evident. I, I took over the national women's team and everybody said, oh, God, you know, coaching women will be really impossible. They're difficult, whatever. Um, there's, there's all this sort of all these stereotypes, which, you know, I found were, were probably wrong. My approach was, look, the game's the same for men and women. Yes, there's not as much speed and tempo, but relatively they're playing against athletes who are, you know, of their same physical level and the, the skills and the rules and everything is the same. So I'm going to treat them as hockey players, whether they're men or women, it doesn't worry me. And people said, oh, you'll, they'll be bitchy. You know, they're terrible. They're, and I... I uh, I'd only ever coached one women's team before that. It was my daughter's under-15 team. And, and indeed, uh, they were lovely, the girls. You know, that was good. Anyway, I, I started in the job and um, I didn't find any of that stuff that people had warned me against. What I found was a group of athletes who were, uh, who were talented, hardworking, uh, ambitious and... and, and uh, keen to improve. They wanted to be good. They wanted to be world champions. And that was a fantastic environment in which to work. But the other thing about it is that um, I was new to it. And at the beginning of the first year, I the tradition was that you wrote a report to the uh, selectors about each player. And I did that. You know, I spent a week after the sort of – I went to Broome, in fact, and sat in a hotel room and I wrote reports about each of the players and I sent them off to the selectors and I thought, well, that's good. Uh, I've done that. And I thought, they're silly. I've sent them to the selectors. So then I sent the reports to the players, each individual. 
boy, did the phone start ringing then. You said this about me. Yeah, that's what I think. I've been saying that to you all year. You just haven't been listening. Maybe you don't want to hear it or whatever. This is what I believe. So it was evident to me that the players appreciated knowing and wanted that sort of feedback. And and it was, uh, while they didn't like it sometimes, it was important. And, and so for me, increasingly, that became an important thing to do, to, be, to have real candour. And over the period of time that I was the coach, then increasingly candour was, in my opinion, the most important thing that you needed. You had to say what you think. And I, I was happy to, lucky to work with a very good sports psychologist and she used to say to me, yeah, you, you, you know, this is, this is what it's about. You've got to tell people what you're thinking and, and uh, they, they will appreciate it even though they might not like it. And so that became, if you like, one of the things that I was uh, constantly vigilant about doing. And there are, there are lots of conflicts in a team. There's lots of, you don't get 30 people together and they all like each other and there's no friction. And my thing was, I'm not going to treat you all equally, but I'll treat you fairly. Uh, And depending on the particular circumstances that you're in or anyone else's in, the criteria which I'll measure what I'm going to do is, is this good for the team? And so that was the standard, if you like, by which I operated. I'll treat you fairly and I'll do it in the interests of the team because the team is number one. And I think that that was a pretty good set of rules to operate by and what I found with the girls is that that they weren't bitchy they were just honest with one another much more so than in men's teams lots of things in men's teams are subterranean and and so men have bigger egos and there's more friction if you like but it's all subterranean and so uh, what the girls were just more honest about it and stuff came out and they talked about it and here's a here's an example for you I mean there's I know, 700 footballers in the AFL in Australia. 800, maybe. There are 50 and 18 clubs, there's 800. 900, maybe. I don't know. And um, none of them are gay. But we know that's not true. Kinsey's right, then, then there's 70 or 80 or 100 of them are gay. So there, there's a whole bunch of them that are living a lie. They can't really even be honest with their teammates about that sort of stuff in the women's game it's a big deal who cares and so uh, I think that uh, and it's still the same I mean uh, you know we have football for girls now and it's they're openly gay but none of the men are what the hell <laughs> so and and my experience with with uh, male athletes is that is that a lot of this stuff as I said is hidden people and and you really it, it comes out and bites you at the worst time under pressure, when there's conflict and difficult circumstances, these frictions appear. So you better have dealt with it beforehand. You better get it, get it open and out there. And my final comment, Jack Welsh, who's no longer with us, was the CEO of General Electric, wrote a very good book, a business book called Winning. And uh, he devoted a whole chapter of it to candor, although he spelt it wrong because he's an American. <laughs> But uh, he, uh, he said the biggest dirty secret in business is lack of candour. It stops good people being promoted. It stops good ideas coming forward. It clogs up your organisation and slows down decision-making and, and, and the business, the, the business of business. And uh, in families, in sporting teams, in business, 
you know, people don't say what they think because they don't want to upset someone. Well, once you're starting to do that, then you're really not dealing with the things you need to. Yeah, conflict's good and it's out there and you better acknowledge it and you better mine for it. And indeed, my, some of my worst experiences in sport came when uh, we, we uh, drifted and didn't deal with it and it came up at the worst time. Rick, can I talk a little bit about the, the, the women's team that you coached in the 90s? I, I know that they were number one in the world, but what I'd like to talk about is the sustained success they had over eight years. And I'm really interested to know how you managed to keep them focused and moving forward without a sense of entitlement. Well, I got lucky because I became the coach. I didn't really know how good the players were. And after about three months, I thought, God almighty, I've been lucky here because this is a terrific group of athletes. They're good. As I said, athletes, they're motivated, they're hardworking and they're ambitious. So I thought, after six months, I thought we can win things. Now, my aim was always to win at the Olympics or to win the World Cup, to win the Champions Trophy. We won the Champions Trophy on penalties, I think, in the first year. And it was interesting because the, the young players in the team took all of the penalties, none of the senior ones. And it was like, so it was fresh and new, but we were trying a bunch of new things. The rules had changed and there was interchange. And we embraced interchange and none of the other countries did. So we were able to start to play at a higher tempo than anybody else. The best thing about the interchange was that right from the beginning, I said, okay, we're playing with 16 every game. We're not playing with 11. And after a couple of years, I had 30 players in the squad who'd all played 50 or more games and they all believed they could do it. And what's the worst thing you can do as a coach is sit someone on the bench and not use them because what's the message you're sending? The message is I don't believe in you. You're not good enough. They got in my squad, they played games. They got in the team and when they got in the team, they played. And here's a little story. I think it's, I talk about this in my latest book, but I remember going to the national championships in Melbourne and I was watching the games and I saw a young girl who was from Melbourne and I said to the selectors, she looks interesting. What about her? You know, we should consider her. And they said, oh, she's not good enough. And I'm like, oh, really? Um, yeah, she used to be in the team before you were the coach. She was there for two years. We've tried her out. She's not good enough. And I watched her for another couple of days. And I, while the game was going on, I went down and I sat with her. And I said to her, tell us your story. And she said, oh, I used to be in the AIS. I came to Perth. I was there for two years. I've been overseas and I with the team five times. And I've played 11 minutes. She'd been overseas. She'd been set on the bench. And the last couple of minutes of the game, they put her on us. Anyway, in the end, I convinced them to put her in the team or to bring her into our squad. And she got an injury a year or two later, so she didn't have a very long career. Her last game in 1996, she's a gold medalist. And I think that, uh, I think that, that, you know, one of the important things you do is you give people opportunities. Now, once we created this environment where we had 25 players that all played 50 matches. They all believed they were good enough. So they started competing against each other. And so it was an internally competitive environment to get in the team. And that just lifted the standard because they were training hard with each other regularly. And so the, the quality of the training and the standard just rose. And uh, we already had a bunch of very good players. And then the ones who came in, the younger ones, they went into that environment and, and they became ambitious. And so... It, it uh, fueled itself and we won uh, the World Cup 
the next year and we won the Champions Australia, then we won the gold medal in Atlanta and we, then we'd won four things in a row, four years, four years at number one and everybody said, oh, well, fuel, that's it. You've had your go. Someone else's turn now. And I kept thinking, well, it doesn't need to be anybody else's turn because we were heading to Sydney and they were all motivated about being there. And so uh, if we keep working hard and we keep learning more, then why can't we continue to be successful? And that's the, the, that was the motivation. Now, when you're a coach, you have to keep changing yourself. You can't, the message gets a bit dull after a few years. So uh, I was fortunate to have a group of people around me who were able to do that. I had very good assistant coaches. And in 1999, for instance, I mean, I sat on the back, back bench a lot and other people did the coaching and so I was refreshing myself for the Olympic year and I think eight years as a coach is a long long time I, I previously thought six is probably about your limit but because it was Sydney because I had good assistance and because the team kept changing the, the coaching team I was the only one who was there for the whole eight years but there are a whole range of other people coming in and out who, who refreshed it and who had different ideas and who who shared them. Then we created an environment where the athletes eventually, I believe, could have coached themselves. And if you really do a good job coaching, you make yourself redundant. And you want to be in some ways because, as I said, once the game starts, the players have to sort out things and, and do it for themselves. The coach sits on the sideline and gets anxious. I want to pick up this idea of redundancy because you've also said very, uh, probably very early on, one of the first coaches to say, the role of the captain is also outdated. Um, can you talk about the leadership structures that you've put in place with your athletes in various sports that have replaced this role? Yeah, well, I mean, that was the other, we, we, we embraced the interchange, we played everybody and uh, we looked at leadership and I'd been the captain of the national team and I think at different times when I look back on it, I was involved, you know, I did things that were in my interest rather than the team sometimes. It's human nature. And my view was, if your team's going to be successful, you need a critical mass of leaders, not just one. One person doesn't embody everything you want. And so I wanted to develop a, uh, a leadership group and to develop leaders. And we had captains and co-captains and as many as six in the group all through for the first four years. And then after that, we extended it even further, you know, so we had as many as eight or and, and, and um, when we were two years out from the Olympics, um, again, my, my approach was, well, do we need a captain at all? Somebody who is the captain, if you like. And one of the, you know, there was a, there was a practical element to it because we had a lot of players who'd been successful, who were well-known, who were starting to, they had status, and they all, they all wanted to be captain. And, and my, my view was as soon as I said, we're not going to have a captain, then all of that politicking stopped. Because there was no, and and but what I want you to do is be a leader, and I th I expect everybody in the team to be a leader, and to make decisions and judgments accordingly. You know, when you look at any game, I mean, in rugby sometimes the captain sort of because the game's slow and it stops, you know, and the, he's pointing and deciding where we're going to kick the ball and all that sort of stuff. But in most other games, in, in a game like Australian football, who's, where's the captain out there? I mean, they're all doing stuff. The guy with the ball who's providing the leadership in a cricket team even if, if you know Ricky Ponting's the captain but he's not batting then who's setting the tone and the tempo the guy who's batting when the bowler's got the ball in his hand he's not thinking about what Ponting wants how am I going to get this guy out people have to show leadership themselves 
And so uh, my view was that, yeah, we, we want that. And, and not everybody has all the stuff you want for leadership. Um, for instance, um, some people set a tone at training that lifts the quality of training. Some people do inspirational thing on the field. Someone in a social environment is socially gregarious and includes those on the periphery. Someone else will put their hand up and say, oh, I made a mistake, and that's leadership. Others, when and the whole team wants to do X, they'll say, well, what about Y? That's also leadership. Um, going against the grain, having a different opinion. I think that uh, all of them have something to offer. Not many of them have all of it. And so uh, why not give them a, the space to show that? And, and the last thing that we wanted in our team was what I would call social loafing, you know, which is um, we'll wait for someone to show us what to do. No, you take the initiative, you, 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 you make you know, some decisions, you get on with it. And so that's the approach that we took. And I think that, uh, that, that, that was an important ingredient in developing a cohesive group. In the Sydney Olympics, we played eight games, we had eight different captains. Someone had to wear the armband, but it didn't really matter. That wasn't the issue. The issue was how are we going to get on with this thing? And because we were interchanging anyway, sometimes the captain was sitting next to me, the one with the armband that day. So other people had to be, had to be taking initiative. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Rick, your, your books are um, they're just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to building culture and high performance, but many, many coaches walk into organizations and the culture's bad. You, the word that's often used is toxic. If someone finds themselves in that situation, they're new in the job. What advice have you got for them about the first things they should do? Yeah, well, it's really, it's really difficult, isn't it? I, I, I was after the Sydney Olympics, I was offered a, uh, a job at the West coast Eagles and at the same time um, with the Fremantle Football Club, in the end I went to Fremantle because they were a basket case and I thought it would be really interesting to see what's going on. I was a high-performance consultant and, indeed, you know, everyone's got a black spot in their CV and perhaps that's mine, <laughs> you know, my year with two years with Fremantle. Um, but um, it was interesting to go there and, and we had the makings, I think, of a good team in Frio, but they lost a lot and that, that, that can be hard work. And I, unfortunately, it was, the coaching was very unstable. We had three coaches in the two years that I was there. And if you're a high-performance consultant and the coach doesn't really want you there, it doesn't really work. So it wasn't an ideal environment. But I, but I think that uh, it, was, 
it was interesting to uh, see what was going on there. My view is that you've got to have, as I said, when I talked about leadership, you've got to have definition about where we, where we've got to go and how do we want to be seen? And what are the, what, what are the things that we would like our club to be remembered for? Um, and, and then you've got to identify those characteristics, those behaviors, and you've got to develop them and grow them in the group and convince the group that this is a place to be. At the same time, you've got to win enough to keep going and hold on to the job and do all the other stuff. You know, so this is a hard, hard, uh, uh, thing to do. You've got to juggle a few different balls, but I think it's about, um, where do we want to get to? What's realistic and how can we, uh, um, how can we get there? And, and, and how do we want to be seen judged? And so you've got to, you've got to map out if you like a pathway and, and uh, then embark on it and you better work hard. You better set an example. Um, you better tell people that uh, it'll be uh, rocky. Not everything will go right. Things will go wrong, but um, we can find our way and hopefully measure progress. Um, and you need long enough to be able to do that. Now I was only at Fremantle for two years and after uh, I, I left, they got to the finals and they started to play better. They, you could see that were on that trajectory. If they hadn't made a few blunders along the way, they might have won a premiership because um, in, the, in the draft at the end of 2001, they had the first and the fourth draft pick and they should have taken Chris Judd and the, and the guy, Chris Judd should never have played for the Eagles. He should have played for the Dockers. But the guy uh, and, the, and the recruiting guy wanted Judd, but someone else made a stupid decision to take um, Trent Crowe from Hawthorne. Dumbest thing I can ever remember. But um, had they got those things right, they would have they would have gone more rapidly and and done even better. You've okay. So you've come in, you set the journey, you've told everyone it's going to be a bumpy road. You're on. You've you've taken a few first steps, and you've got this disruptive peer pressure within the team. Do you, do you cut those people? Do you try to turn them around? How have you dealt with, with that kind of negative influence in the past? Well, I mean, peer pressure, in my opinion, is your, your most powerful force for, but can be a negative force against. And so you have to be able to, you have to navigate that. And, um, I mean, I experienced, if you like, a period after we lost in London in 2012, when I was coaching the men's team, perhaps my greatest disappointment, there was a lot of negativity after that. The players used to give rankings to the coach, you know, and when, when you lose at the Olympics, well, you know, we lost one match, I suppose, but it was a critical semi-final. Um, you, the coach gets the blame, and so all my rankings were down that year. And, and um, um, we... We started to, we, well, the first thing you've got to do is get them to look at what went wrong and try and mine for all of that conflict and all that negativity that's there. And I reckon it took us a good six months to a year to sort of get through some of that. Again, our, the defining position was whatever we're doing, is it the best thing for the team? And are, are you going to be honest about what's going on? And what do you mean by this? And what do you mean by that? And uh, let's assess what went wrong and how can we fix it and what are we going to do? And um, we went 
deeply into that, mining for conflict, looking for what was wrong. And yeah, there was there were still disruptors in there. There were still people who they would say yes, but they meant no. And and there's many there's many types of uh, of yes that that aren't really yes. But once you get a critical mass of them there, then I think you can start to build things positively. We still had, we went to the World Cup in 2014, so two years after the Olympics, and we still had people there who weren't convinced, who were, who were not, not as positive as they could have been. But in the end, the players were managing them. The other players were managing them. The other players, and, and we spent a long time, everybody had a signature. How do you behave when you're under pressure, when things aren't going right? And so you have to be aware for one another how you're going to help each other get out of this. And I think that that was uh, one of the crucial things. Even on the day of the World Cup final, one or two of these guys were giving us trouble. We got all the way to there and it was still still in the background, but the players were managing it. And it's, it's a bit like you look at the Australian cricket team, and I'm sorry to use these analogies, but I hope lots of Australians will be seeing it. Shane Warne wasn't the best team man around, was he? He was difficult. But he was a brilliant player and you want him in your team and he, he makes a difference. You can, he can win your matches. Why did he work in that cricket team? He worked in that cricket team because he was surrounded by Langer and Hayden and War and McGrath and Gilchrist, a whole bunch of people who were substantial, who stood for something. And, you know, shut up, Shane. Don't be silly. Get on with it. <laughs> But if you put Shane with a group of young, impressionable guys, who, who then you'll have chaos. And, and I think that uh, in the end, if you build the right sort of team and they're all looking out after one another and the peer pressure is a positive force rather than a negative one, then uh, it works for you. And it's one of the most powerful forces. There's a, there's a photo in, in, that I sometimes use at halftime in the World Cup final. I didn't take it. One of the staff took it. And... At halftime, there's a few of us coaches sort of sitting, looking at a, something on a board, thinking about what we're going to do and say. But the players are all in groups, talking to one another, interacting with one another about what's happening because they're the ones who've got to go out there in the second half and deal with what's going on. And, and it's a really good example of, uh, of the interaction between the players because they're, they're working on it together. And at halftime, what do you say at halftime in the big match? Well... The first thing I used to say is, what do you think? And if the players had the answers, then I don't need to say anything. But usually I had two or three things that I thought were important. If they said one or two of them, that's fine. I'll tick them off and we'll get on to the third one. But I think that, uh, that in the end, they have to own it. And you have to understand that they have to own it. It's like, as I said right at the beginning, you've got to look at the players and you've got to pr- create an environment in which they can shine. And if you try and impose your tactics on, on them and those tactics don't necessarily fit that group of players, then that, that's not going to work. They've got to own the tactics. I think I know why you therefore say coaches don't change athletes, athletes change themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. You know, someone said, oh, who have you changed? And I said, no, I, I create an environment in which they change themselves. And let's face it, you're not good. You don't have an upright reverse, okay? This is something you need as a skill in a hockey player. Then you can develop it. I can show you how. But unless you spend time, it won't be there. And, uh, okay, um, you're not good enough at this. Then you've got to work at it. 
but unless you put in the time and have the interest and the enthusiasm for it, you won't develop it. And and so that's exactly what I have teenage boys and they're both hockey players and I, I, I haven't got any hair because I keep saying to them, look, if you want to be good at this, then you have to actually spend some time. Otherwise, yeah, you're a good player and whatever, but there's a difference between being good and, and very good and special. And it's, it, it is the stuff, I suppose, of um, Ericsson, 10,000 hours. The, the, the maestros spent 10,000 hours playing the violin. The ones who ended up as music teachers spent 5,000 hours. You know, that's, that's the difference between being exceptional and being really good. Rick, if I could ask one final question, and it would be around legacy. And the question is, what legacy do you believe you are leaving as a coach? Hmm. Well, I, I, I think that it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, was, I was watching a club game here in Perth on the weekend. We're really lucky. It's full on here. Uh, uh, and I was sitting with a guy who I went to the Olympics with in Munich. He's 10 years older than me, so he's in his 70s. And uh, he, was, uh, he was saying to me, oh, it's so fast. The game's so good now. And, and people, people sort of yearn for the old days. The athletes now are better and more skillful and, and they're, they're, they're terrific. Now, we might have been given the opportunities that they've been given or whatever, but the game's much better than it was and the athletes are wonderful. <clears throat> and I think that for me, my, my hockey journey was a search for uh, perfection, to get better and better and to keep improving and to do things that perhaps I didn't think was possible. And sometimes you had those moments and it wasn't always in a match. It was often at training where you thought, oh, God, that was good. You know, I wish I could keep doing that. And, and, and I think, uh, and, and hockey was a release and a freedom from everyday life. Like you're driving to training and all of the problems you've got at work or your study or the exams or whatever else is coming along pales into insignificance when you arrive there and you get out in the field and you start playing and you lose yourself in that thing that you're doing. That's, I think, one of the wonderful things about sport. My legacy is that I think anything's possible. I think you can, it's about humans, people trying to be better than they thought they could possibly be. And, and that was the message that I, uh, that I uh, always gave to my athletes. And I think the people who I coached understand that and are continuing that. And maybe that's uh, the, the thing that's a legacy. I suppose, you know, in terms of the performance of the team, the, the bit that I'm most proud of, the fact that we were sustainably good um, with the girls and with the boys. Indeed, the winning record for the Kookaburras is better than the Hockey Roos. But no one sees it that way because one day in 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 July in 2012, we lost in the semi-final to Germany, and so we couldn't win the gold medal there. But the hockey, the Kookaburras won everything else over the six-year period I was with them. But 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 I I think that uh, we played in. If you count the Commonwealth Games, it was 25. But if you don't count the Commonwealth Games, which probably is a level below, if, if you count the Champions Trophy, World Cup, Olympics. We played in 21 matches, which are the final or the semi-final. So there's a last chance, and we won 20 of them. And, you know, when I played, I think I played in about 
12 or 14 of those and we won half of them. And that's probably what's par for the course. You know, that's the bit that, uh, that, that I feel best about, the fact that when it came to those matches, we, were, we, we played well in those days. Dr. Rick Charlesworth, thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, it's Jim. Dr. Rick Charlesworth was a childhood hero of mine. I played schoolboy hockey because of him, and the guys on my team at times thought they were channeling him. He is someone I greatly admire. It was a real joy speaking with him. I really connected with Rick's views that the components into building a successful team must include creating an environment where people can change themselves and that a team needs a critical mass of leaders to win. Rick's views on creating candor and that a culture of being open, honest and sincere is a two-way street, not only in sport but also in the workplace. Rick references the no excuses, get it done mindset of Jack Welsh in his book Winning. It's a great read and a great business book. There were so many insightful lessons here for me I've already found myself coming back to listen to Rick's words a few times. Coming up next on the Great Coaches Podcast, we have one of the most experienced and decorated coaches in world rugby, Eddie Jones. I remember one of the first sessions I did, I'll give Suntory a plug since you were the Sahi. I did with Suntory. Uh, I said, for the next 10 minutes, we've got to be 100%. And after one minute, a player stopped, stopped being 100% and I finished the session. Sent him home, said to him, go and sell beer. Don't come to training anymore. Made it, over-exaggerated the problem. And immediately I got a behaviour change in the group. That we train for shorter periods, but at the intensity we needed to train. So it was no longer three hour sessions, shorter sessions, but we trained with a far greater application, which then resulted in them playing better. And just before we leave, if you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. Please contact us using the details in the show notes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.